I'll put this in here. I have a habit of flinging my arms around. And there it goes well. One of my children has a friend whose mother has Tourette's. And um, she is rather humorous about it. Her, her way of coping. And she flings her arms just quite suddenly. And she <coughs> loves cooking. And as you can imagine, when she's in the kitchen with knives, it's a problem. So uh, on the entrance way to that kitchen, which is a, a, a big island that goes around, and then you've got to come in through one end of it. They put a gate across it. So what their kids do is they come in and they like to watch mum on the other side of the island cooking in the kitchen because you can't go in there, obviously, because it's very dangerous to go in there while she's cooking. So there's knives flinging around everywhere and the kids are sitting there eating popcorn while they're watching their mother cooking. <laughs> I'm a little bit like that when it comes to preaching, so sorry about that. You'll have to just get used to that. Uh, as we said, I was the dean of the cathedral for four years. Prior to that, I was a Baptist pastor. And prior to that, I was an Anglican priest. And prior to that, I was a Baptist pastor. So I'm still not entirely sure where I'm supposed to settle. Um, I did four years at the cathedral. And... Um, finished at the end of last year, and now I am free. <laughs> uh, back into a normal parish church at St Christopher's in Tawa. When I went to the cathedral, they were terrified I was going to turn it into a Baptist church. When I went to St Christopher's, they were terrified I was going to turn it into a cathedral. You can't win. So um, it's not my intention to do any of those kinds of things. I just enjoy doing ministry. I've been at it for 30 years now, and that's just concerning considerably that it's been that long. So anyway, I've got given this passage for Ephesians chapter 6 tonight to talk about the armour of God and what that means for us. But what I want to do is start off with something a little bit different and work our way into it and hopefully it will make sense. Can I get that slide up on the screen? Hopefully this is going to work. It is. Okay, leave that there for a moment. My hero, John Travolta. Over the last, over the last uh, two months in Tawa, we've buried four kids who took their own lives between the ages of 14 and 23. And as you know, New Zealand has one of the worst statistics for suicide across the age range in the developed world. It's really bad. And um, I was at a seminar recently where we were starting to talk about what the issues were regarding suicide and mental health in New Zealand. And it's interesting whenever you go to these meetings and you talk to the psychiatrists afterwards, there's a common question I've been asking them, and also the principles of schools that have been affected by this kind of disorder that's happened in New Zealand, and that is this. Of all the people who have taken their own lives, how many, how many of them did you see coming? And the answer to that question was, almost none. So that being the case, the next question is, so why do we have the seminars? If we do all the details of what goes on in people's lives, and we're looking at mental health across the board, but yet the suicide statistics are getting larger and larger and larger in New Zealand, despite the emphasis and energy going into it, what's happening? And it's a really serious question to ask, because I want to talk about the idea of diversion tonight. And it may be comfortable, it may be uncomfortable, but it pushes us into the realm of having to talk about things that we don't like to talk about, because it's not necessarily comfortable for us nationally, or as young people, or as those who are getting older about what mental health means and where it comes from and how we need to address it. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about that this evening through this idea of diversions. One of the things I realised when I was growing up is that kids, particularly myself, you need to have some kind of momentum in your life. If you don't have forward momentum, you slow down, you stagnate, and the next thing that occurs is despair. 
Despair is the concept that you actually have nothing to look forward to. There's nothing coming up that you're going to enjoy. There's no sense of there being a next week or a next month or a next year. We have a series of concerns. Now, you can plug the holes of what you think those might be in many different ways. Everything from friendships to housing to income to work to employment to um, uh, big national issues that we're constantly debating in the media, so on and so forth, and also social media. But it doesn't matter how big those debates are. If we've got personal momentum in our lives, then there's a sense in which something of our own mental health tends to survive most things. But when momentum stops, we get into big trouble. And it's not uncommon for us to see that in people's lives. So you don't have to be 15, you can be 50 for that to occur. So in my ministry, I've come across a lot of men, particularly in their middle years, between the age of about 45 and 60, who no longer like their jobs, but they can't change. They earn good money, they've got lovely families, but they are stuck, and they're staring down the barrel of another 15 to 20 years in work that they don't enjoy. And when your meaning is derived from your work, and you find that there is no forward momentum for you anymore, despair kicks in. And when people become despairing, they're actually able to function almost perfectly in every social setting. But in a deep place, they are despairing of what their future is going to look like, and they'll never articulate it, and you won't necessarily observe it. How many of you have experienced despair before? A few? Yeah, nearly everybody here has experienced it. It's an incredibly powerful reality that ultimately leads to a form of hopelessness. Now, that little reality is not necessarily connected to depression, especially when you talk about clinical depression in the sense that I feel down, flat, can't get out of bed, so on and so forth. What we do know is that people who are like that don't tend to have the energy to take their lives. The people you think are going to do it often don't, but the people who do take their lives are the people you often least expected to. So despair, out of a lack of momentum, makes a big difference in the way we actually live our lives. That's number one. The second thing is size matters. Size matters nationally and matters internationally. So, for example, how many of you have heard about the debate regarding the LGBTQI thing in New Zealand? All heard of it? Okay. How many people do you think in the States, the United States, know about that debate? The debate across the world. We say it's huge, it's global. 1%. About 1%. It's not very high at all. So America has 350 million people. So if you've got a, uh, come from a very conservative background, whether it be Christian or otherwise, and you don't want to get involved in that debate, you are surrounded by about 60 million people who agree with you. Now that makes a difference. Because you can hide in any social issue in the United States and the United Kingdom or in Europe, for that matter, because numbers matter. In New Zealand, how many people live here? Four About 4.5 million people. It's hardly any. Geographically, we're quite large. We've got nobody here. So there is nowhere to hide. Now, what I want to talk to you about is the idea that when we deal with major social issues in New Zealand, having a different opinion is exceptionally difficult because the group of people who will agree or disagree with you may actually be quite small on both sides of the fence. But depending where your relationships are, the effect that that will have on you is enormous. When I was 17 years old, actually even younger, between the age of 15 and 17 growing up, I have no recollection of ever picking up the Wellington Post or whatever it's called, the Evening Post, is it? Evening Standard, Evening Post, um, and reading the front page. None at all. In fact, I used to deliver it, but it was all just chip fish and chips paper as far as I was concerned. 
you didn't read it, you didn't read page two about world news and you didn't read the politics page, if you were really wanting to know something you went to the sports page, if you even had any bent that way. All we were concerned about was chopping down someone's trees, sliding them down the bank of somebody's precious flowers on the weekends and hanging out with our mates. The issues that were really chafing the cheeks of most adults, which when I was growing up was nuclear fallout and war, was actually a big world global problem, but we didn't really think much about that either. So those kind of massive global social issues were not part of the sphere of my thinking or the world in which I lived. You didn't worry about that stuff until you got to about 25 to 30, or when you had kids, or when you were really boring enough to actually want to read the newspaper itself and take an interest in politics. Now, however, we're asking kids about the age of 12 onwards to make big decisions about social issues that I didn't have to address until I was 30. Sexual, uh, gender stuff, sexuality, environmentalism, politics left and right, which way your parents vote, um, major environmental catastrophe, uh, world war, peace, all that kind of stuff, kids have got to have an opinion on. And we've tribalised our children into small groups depending on which way they think. And we go, to, they hear, we hear them say it, oh, we've all got an opinion we want to share, which may be true, but what they don't have is the emotional resilience to cope when someone disagrees with them. And the reason for that is that adults don't have the emotional resilience to, dis to deal with disagreement. You look at how we behave with each other when we have a punch-up over a particular political issue or social issue. It doesn't often go well. And if you can't do it, we have huge expectations emotionally for our kids that don't work either. And then the church tries to address this issue by doing a debate amongst lots of different groups of people. And what our kids hear is that we are no better than what the general perception from the public is about who we generally are. So the way we handle this stuff has got to be addressed in the life of the church because it actually has an enormous impact on the way that we operate as Christians in the world. And what I want to suggest to you today, or this evening, to start thinking about is that many of these massive social political issues for Christians are actually diversions. And that's the uncomfortable thought. Because when our identity comes from a political world, world view, our identity is no longer in Christ. And if you do not get that, then you are opening yourself and all those around you to having a lack of identity when the social issue changes and we wind up jumping from one to the next to the next. And what we have found is that when you get involved in all these issues, what it tends to create is isolation, frustration and a lot of anger. And all that stuff cripples who we are when that's where we find our identity and other people start to disagree with us. And it's very difficult to work out how we operate Christianly within that worldview. And that's where I want to start this sermon. So can we start from now? Is that right? <laughs> so for the next couple of hours, we're going to attend to this issue of diversionary um, issues that go on in the lives of Christians from all ages up until the delicate age of 54, which is what I am at the moment. So misdirection, our diversion. Misdirection is what the eyes see and the ears hear, then the mind believes. And we almost read anything on the internet and we get hooked into it and we go, it's on the internet, that must be true, right? There's this thing called Babylon B, has anyone come across that thing? Yeah. I had not heard of that until about two years ago and someone sent me an article and I remember thinking, that's horrible! And I went online and spurted out all this uh, rubbish 
And someone pointed out kindly that it was actually a satirical website and none of that was true. At which point I closed my website, my Facebook account. So, <laughs> if you're going to be an idiot, just try not to do it publicly. That's the general rule of thumb for life. So anyway, what the um, eyes see and what the ears hear, the mind tends to believe. Many years ago, Jane and I travelled to Ephesus, which is the book that we're about to read a part of tonight. And while we were there, this is the first place they take you, and that's the Ephesian um, Arcade. And then down the, that long road is called the Arcadian Way. And at the end of where that um, path goes, that was where the sea was. So the port for Ephesus was just down the end there. Now it's 25 miles further on because that river was silted up about several centuries ago and this is all that's left. So what you need to know about Ephesus is that the Ephesian church was born into a cosmopolitan world. We tend to think of the biblical world as being a bit isolated, kind of little tribal groups, people wandering around with sandals and having camels in the background not moving very far. Well, Ephesus was actually the centre of trade. There was an enormous amount of traffic that went through this place because it opened up into the entirety of what we now call Turkey. And that whole area then filtered off into some parts of Europe and also into Asia. So that cosmopolitan world had an enormous amount of immigration. So if you think we've got immigration problems worldwide now, no different from back then, they didn't have American border control. None at all. So people came and went all the time. It was based purely on trade which meant that this was a port. In ports you had brothels, you had all manner of licentious behaviour, you had paganism, emperor worship, you name it, it all happened in that place. And that was where the Ephesian church was born. So when New Zealand church looks back and goes, it's all getting a bit complicated at the moment because we're not seen the same way and the world's changed, so on and so forth. We've got nothing. <laughs> we have nothing. And the Arcadian Way led to the water that used to be the face of the world, if you like, and the world came through that. I took this photo while I was over there because I was enamoured by it. It's this one. Can anyone, it's an advert. Does anyone know where it's advertising? <laughs> My little thing doesn't work. Okay. This is an advertisement of how to get to a bordello. Or a brothel, for those of you who don't know what one of those is. So this thing here, the foot... Very important, because it points you in the direction you need to go. And you know that it's a brothel, because just over here is the picture of a woman that's just rubbed out, with lovely hair. So you're going in that direction, and the foot is important in size, because if you put your foot in there, and it's smaller than the foot that's there, then you're too young. (laughs) (laughs) Just above the foot, there's a little cross, just up in there, you probably can't see it very well. And that says there's an intersection, if you keep going this way, and the brothel is where that hole is, just across from the intersection. And the little heart shape then isn't really a heart where you receive love, it's a money bag. So if you bring your money, you follow this direction, your foot's big enough, you'll find yourself in the right place, and there you can pay. If you can't pay, just down the bottom here, square box, that's the library. And you can go to the library instead. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> the version of the brothel. So open, these adverts were absolutely everywhere, so it was a pretty dodgy place at the time, amongst other things along with corruption. <coughs> what's interesting about this is that the library, where people could go, it was also up there because they found that there's a tunnel that goes from the library to the brothel. <laughs> so hubby could say to wife, I'm just off to the library, did a bit of research, people would see you going in there, they wouldn't see you going across the road, but you know where they were going, underneath to the um, 
place of disrepute. So that was Ephesus. So when we read the book of Ephesus, we have to remember that that's the context into which Paul um, was writing to the people at the time. So in this context, the church had to make some decisions. Was it going to um, adapt? Was it going to assimilate? Was it going to work out how it was going to be relevant? Or was it going to get involved in hostility, condemnation, protest about the nature of society, so on and so forth? And Paul comes back and says, actually, it's none of those things. It's none of those things. You're not going to go and protest to society, and neither are you going to assimilate, because both of those things are playing on the same level playing ground as society. You need to find out who your actual identity is in Christ as you work out who you are in this world, not trying to work out what the world is or should be. You're the ones carrying a particular message that needs to be made known. So I printed this off. If I'd known you had little tellies, I would have made it bigger, but I haven't, so sorry about that. So in Ephesians, it's split up in three parts. The first one is about what we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, so on and so forth. The second part is the building up of the church. And as a part of the building up of the church, he says that the people in the church need to put, take some things off of themselves and they need to put something new on. Just like when you get up in the morning and you put your clothes on. If you're like me, it's whatever's at the top of the drawer, which is why I always look the same. Okay, so every now and again, my wife, lovely Jane, comes in and turns the drawer upside down so she gets a different vista from time to time. All right? So you have to take something off and you have to put something different on rather than the stuff you've been wearing and you've got used to. So he says, for example, simple things in Ephesians 4.17, you must take off lies because you live in the light of truth. You take off lies and you put on living in truth. And he says that is not an easy place to reside. Especially when you've lived in the shadows, you now have to live in the light, which is about transparency. You have to take off anger. Anyone been angry recently? Put your hand up. Okay, was it justified? Put your hand up if it was justified. Probably not, you're wrong. (laughs) Take it off, because you have to exchange anger for peace. And that is a decision that you make when you get up in the morning. What am I going to wear today? Am I going to wear anger or am I going to wear peace? Which one fits my identity in Christ best? You have to work that out. He says you have to take off theft. So you can't avoid the tax department. (laughs) You can't feed other people's material if you're a student. Sorry about that. I know it's terrible. Turn it in was the worst thing that ever got invented. You know, a digital turn it in. I never have got my master's degrees if I've been around. Okay, so you've got to take off theft and you become generous. Most of us, if we're honest, are a bit on the take, whereas Jesus said, actually, you always have to work out whether you're on the give. And it's not just with your money, it's with your time and your resources and all that you've been gifted with. There's this thing called meritorious entitlement, Most of us suffer from it. And that means that I've worked really hard and I deserve certain things. Anyone got a law degree? We'll pick on lawyers for a moment. Excellent. So most lawyers, how many of you are there? Oh, you just pointed to someone who wasn't going to volunteer? Okay, just one. Just just one that's known. I thought you were pointing at me. Okay, so let's let's take let's take some let's take we have this meritorious entitlement. I I have done X amount of things and therefore I am entitled to X amount. 
So if you're a lawyer, your whole, whole point is to get to the point where you can charge around $400 an hour. Okay? If you've done that, you're very successful. And there's an entitlement that comes with that for many people. It's not just about lawyers, but it runs across the board. But here's the deal. Meritorious entitlement is only specific to your context. And it's a reminder that you didn't create the context in which you can make that money. You're just bleeding the system. Because if I take the average lawyer who's making that kind of money, I've, I've got a friend who earns a lot more than that, and I've told him this story, he likes it. If I say, if I take, his name's Glenn, so I said, Glenn, if I take you, and take you out of Palmerston North, actually, I'm giving too much away now, <laughs> where you can charge like a wounded bull, and he goes, yes, I do. But I said, I'm very generous with it. And I said, I haven't experienced that yet. <laughs> so, and I drop you into a village in Mongolia, where the element of status for you is whether you can butcher a goat, boil a testicle to make a lovely testicle stew. Do you have entitlement in that context? Because you're a lawyer. And the answer is no. no. You didn't earn it at all. You've basically milked a system that created the context in which you are making money today. So therefore you have to take off the idea of theft or drawing out from and the idea of generosity and giving back. He then says you have to take off Gossip. That's a cool one. The gossip one is, you know, I'm only sharing this for the purposes of prayer. <laughs> right? Or, you know, I'm not wanting to be nasty, but... And we start telling stories about people. And we don't necessarily know the full context at all. We might even think we do, but we don't necessarily. Take off gossip and put on encouragement. These are the words of Paul. Take off revenge which is a real downer as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> because it feels good. There's nothing better than smacking someone in the nose. I know. I remember years ago, a guy who was a, a pastor that I knew, it wasn't me, um, he had to leave New Zealand and go to Australia to continue ministry because he developed this thing called closed fist counselling. And um, it didn't go down super well in Wanganui at the time. So take off revenge and go for forgiveness. And as much as you forgive others, you are forgiving yourself. Promiscuity. Take it off and put in something else called self-control. Not difficult. Take off drunkenness and put on God's spirit. So he gives these impressions about the things that we need to be by taking something off. And the Ephesian church was really about this is who you are in Christ in this context among all these people. It's not about you trying to adapt to them or make yourself accessible to them. It's not about you trying to appease them or protest against them. It's a case of you knowing who you are in Christ and being comfortable with it. For lots of us, being comfortable in our own skin is kind of difficult. Because one of the problems is we can go, well, being comfortable in my own skin means that I can behave like a complete asshole, but I'm comfortable about it. <coughs> well, that's not what we're talking about. The idea is that my identity in Christ makes me comfortable in society, and I'm okay with that. And that's one of the things he says we need to kind of get to. So don't be diverted, if you like, by putting non-essentials in place of the essentials, because if you do, your community will fail. If you get strung out about the fact that there's brothels in town, your community will fail. Because the bigger question is, who are you as a community in this town? What is your politic in terms of following Christ, not what are the politics of society? So I'm, I've never been a National Party supporter, but I neither have I been a Labour Party supporter, and I've never been a Green Party supporter, and I've never been a New Zealand First supporter, but I voted for most of them at various times. Why? Because my identity is in Christ, 
and at some point in time I have to make a decision about who I want to run the country given on what I know about what it means for me to see the world through my eyes. The polity I hold, the politic I belong to, is the politic of the kingdom of God, expressed most fully in the person of Jesus Christ. So we are having to work that out for ourselves. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, put on the whole armour of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil And the question in our era is why? Why bother? You see, we've kind of done away, to some extent, with the spiritual nature of God in the world. We've become so issues-based now in tackling all the grand schemes of our society that we forget that actually God's spirit is at work. And a corollary of that is there is an anti-God spirit living in the world as well. Our modern world has a problem with that. I don't know why, but it seems to, particularly those who've been highly educated. But amongst everybody else, they don't have a problem with it at all. So the more educated we become, the more cynical we become about the nature of this work of God's Spirit, both good and ill in the world. And that's something that Paul says you have to get your heads around. Be strong ultimately in the Lord. It's not what you can see that is the problem. It's not what you can see, it's what you can't see. For those of you who've got degrees, most of us live with a terminal fear of what we don't know. But actually the truth is, what we should fear is what we think we know, but we don't. And Paul unpacks that. He says that you have to be aware that you're involved or engaged in a spiritual battle primarily for the nature of people's souls and lives. And that for the last 30 years I've seen this over and again. It's got nothing to do with people's ability to navigate their way out of trouble with social services or whatever. They're all good. But the real change is the one when people's hearts are transformed, when their worldview gets shifted, when they have a healed mind, when they have a healed sense of self. Or if they've got major mental health issues, they're in a community that provides ongoing, purposeful healing for them (coughs) daily because that's what they need. Because ultimately... There's another spirit that gets a hold of them and it's far more damaging. And Paul goes on to say, for our struggle is not against the enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. And this is where it gets kind of esoteric. And we go, well, I don't get all that. So I'll tell you what, I'll sort of ignore it. Now, I'm a fairly rational person. Reasonably rational. Actually, kind of cynical rational as well. It, it gets worse the more I let myself go. And over the years, I haven't seen a whole lot of really weird things. And it'd be great to get up and told you I've seen people crawling up walls and all the rest of it and being delivered from demons, etc., etc. I haven't a lot. But I have seen it on the odd occasion and been experienced it twice in my life. And quite frankly, that was enough. The first time was a Holy Trinity Tower. We had this beautiful prayer room. It was a circular, a circular room. And we were in there praying for this woman. And um, I got dragged in because we had this rule that a bloke couldn't be with a woman. So I was sitting in the sidelines watching um, my colleague who laid his hands to pray for this woman. This woman must be about five foot four. Um, about your size, Lily. Not. Oh, okay. <laughs> four foot four. So, so she was sitting there, and she, when she came in, just said, look, I'm, um, I, I get a bit out of it from time to time. I don't know what's going on. I don't feel very well. But largely, I function okay, but I just know something's wrong. He laid hands on her to pray, and that was fine. He prayed this long-winded prayer, and then he said these words, in the name of Jesus, I set you free. She leapt out of her chair. He was about... He's about He's about 5'8", so he's a bit smaller than me. And she grabbed him by the collar and threw him across the prayer room. I was sitting there thinking, break out the popcorn. <laughs> this is terrifying. There's a whole Steven Spielberg opening up before me. So there's this, suddenly we were confronted with what evil does to people. And I have no words to describe what you can experience. Now, what I experience. Now some people say, oh, we should have mental health issues, and they become very strong, which they do. But they don't become that strong. <laughs> so it took two of us to contain her and pray for her, and she calmed down after a while. And we prayed for a great length after that, and then we each sent her away. But after we prayed about half an hour, and she left us, she came back the following week, and she said, I haven't had another attack I've been at perfect peace. Now you see that stuff once every now and again that changes your perspective on the world in which you live. Do not underestimate the power of evil in the world. If you can't work out how to define it, just accept it. But you come at it with the idea that in Jesus there is full freedom for all people. We fight against not flesh and blood. Governments come and go, but the same forces of evil lurk around us just the same. But unless you open your eyes, you will not see them. So he says, to do that, you're going to need the following things. Put on the belt of truth. Always seeking it, but you're not seeking truth from some academic sense. You're seeking God's truth. Michael Pollyanyi, the, the philosopher, said that all truth is God's truth. But your truth is always only provisional. Unless you've become God. And most of us wander around thinking we found the answers. But when you start thinking that way, you exclude God out of the equation. So there's a sense in which we are looking for the truth, but we are looking at it from God's point of view. That's why he says, pray unceasingly in your day-to-day routines of life so that you can see as God sees. And it doesn't happen immediately, but it does happen over time. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. That is justice through your right action. It's not protesting everybody else's justice. There is nowhere in the New Testament where it says Jesus saw something terrible happen and said unto the disciples, I'll just pop out and see Caesar about this. Didn't do it. He just dealt with the people at the time. When he said the breastplate of righteousness is your right actions in every circumstance, 
That's what he's talking about. It's you living rightly in the world for justice in the circumstances and the moment in which you find yourself. If some of you find yourselves in government services down the track, sure, you can do a bigger thing. But your point is not to protest. Your point is to make a difference by being the difference. He says, put on the shoes, the right shoes in the right places, proclaiming, the, uh, proclaiming peace. What do you do in shoes? How many of you got more than one pair? You're all liars. You've got vastly more than that. You wear them for different occasions, right? You go tramping, you put on tramping shoes. You go running, you put on running shoes. You're going out for the evening, you put on nice shoes, whatever. Shoes are part of the pedagogy that we walk around in. They say something about what we're about to do. Putting on the right shoes means that we are doing something different. Is anyone from the Salvation Army here? You used to go? You worked there? there. Okay. Well, I found out only just recently, they have this stuff called witness wear. So you know how they all wear that really drab outfit, white and black, Salvation Army? They wear that all the time. But when they're going out for social stuff, they put on what they call their witness wear, which means they start looking like you lot. So you become more casual. It's like, I'm I'm witnessing today. So you're perfectly obvious because I'm dressed like this. And um, you put on your preaching wear. Or if you're in a cathedral, you put on your fancy dress because you're doing cathedral stuff. So what Paul's saying is that you have to put on what you need. And when your shoes, he comes from Isaiah, it's the good news. Blessed are the feet who bring good news. You put on what what you need for the conditions in which you are going. Be really aware of the circumstances in which you find yourself. So at work, when you're wanting to do kingdom stuff, you will do it in a particular way. When you're out with your mates who aren't in Christ, then you do it in a particular way. You're just aware that you are doing and being in different spaces. But the question is, are you even aware of it? Be aware. He then says, put on the sword, the helmet of salvation. If you looked at Roman soldiers back in the days, they had these um, helmets they used to wear, but they were quite flash. It's like heat gear. They had red colours and that determined what rank they were in the army, and some of them were more silver. And if you got a plain leather condom, then you were just basically um, arrow fodder that they shoved you out the front. So the better your head gear looked, the further back you were from the danger. That's pretty much the way it works. So put on the helmet of salvation, and what Paul was saying is, know who you are in Christ. Because that protects the very centre of your well-being in the world in which you find yourself. Know who you are. Know Thessia Alton. Know thyself. It was on all the temples of the Greek world back about two and a half thousand years ago. The very first question, who are you? If you can identify that and you say, I'm in Christ, you've got a long chance of surviving well and living well and living life in its fullness. Pray in the Spirit, he says. Oh, sorry, the sword of, self, sword of the Spirit. Scripture is really what you're referring to. Know the stories. You don't have to go memorise it, but memorise the stories. The Old Testament, our society gets really upset about it. We go, oh, oh, it's full of all sorts of evil, horrible things and God smiting people. It's not. It's actually stories of ordinary people getting on with their lives with God. And they're your stories and they're my stories. And by reading them, we see how God worked at that time and how God continues to work in and through us even in this time. Know it. Don't know about it. So understand the scriptures. He says, pray in the spirit. That's letting the spirit set the agenda. So when you sit down for your prayer time, have some time where you just sit and say, Lord, I don't know what to pray about right at this moment in time. Sit in silence. And when something comes to mind, and maybe something completely left field, sit and pray with it and see where it goes. Pray in the spirit at all time. Let him set the agenda as long as you're own praying with your mind. And pray for your leaders, he said, because an awful lot rests on them. If Scotty fails publicly, and I know this from experience, it has an enormous effect on you. 
But all you people, you can go and do all sorts of naughty things, and nobody really cares. Except your mums who love you. <laughs> and dads, who are grumpy about the whole affair, but they'll love you just the same. But if Scotty does it, and it's public, the effects are huge. Pray for your leaders. Don't forget that. Don't get into the whole egalitarian, oh, they're just one of us. No, the stakes are vastly higher for them. Don't believe they're not. Pray for your leaders, because they need it across all fields of life. So I'll just finish on this. Part of the deal is that we get diverted, and there's a sense in which there's an old saying that says you can't see the wood for the trees. And the idea of that is that you get so involved in the detail, you forget the bigger picture. If you're involved in some protest group or some kind of group in town which gives you a, a political sense of well-being, that's fine. But don't get so involved in the details, you lose a sense of yourself. <coughs> you are in Christ while you're at the National Party Convention. I don't think... Is anybody... No, I'm not going to ask that question. <laughs> <coughs> you are in Christ when you go and join the Rape Crisis Centre. You're in Christ when you decide to do politics. You're in Christ when you decide to be a teacher. You're in Christ when you decide to be a lawyer. You're in Christ when you're unemployed. You are in Christ. That's your identity. But when we lose a sense of who we are, we can't see the trees for the wood. Or wood for the trees, rather. And that's important to come to terms with. I drew this quickly. Go through this. Most of us exist with two problems. One is we see the world in two dimensions. And we see the world as either being, we face it either naively or we face it cynically. And I used to have this idea that naivety and cynicism were twins at birth but got separated over the years. And that they were the best and worst parts of us. So naivety, I love naive people because I'm a bit cynical. And they're really gullible. Right? And you know people like that. Some of you will be people like that, and you hate people like me. So, you're really naive, okay? Really easy to have on. You see the best in everybody, so on and so forth. Nobody can do anything wrong. And then the cynicism in is horrible, because corrosive cynicism is destructive, and it sucks the life out of everybody and all that. But naive people are lovely and friendly, right? However, the wisdom is that both of them are equally destructive. Naive people create major chaos around them by simply being... Are fools. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Cynical people become corrosive and they create just as much destruction at the other end. And I had this theory over the years that wisdom was the fulcrum in the middle. A bit of both. You had a bit of cynicism and a bit of naivety, you could be right. I decided a couple of years ago that I was wrong. So therefore, I am wrong and everybody who believes that is wrong too. Actually, wisdom is entirely separate. Wisdom steps away from that and looks at it for what it is and says you're both wrong. In fact, none of that is wise at all, because wisdom is entirely different. It's something that we have to come comes from God. It comes from dealing with the world in a very different way and seeing the world differently. We have to actually see it, if you like, in three dimensions. So the way you see the world at the moment is two-dimensional, but if you want to see it three-dimensionally, it means that it changes. So, for example, take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We see it two-dimensionally. You just simply say that the gospel is about you uh, saying, I accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, and when I've done that, said the sinner's prayer, filled with the Spirit, I'm in. Well, that's fine in some context, but you go to a different part of the world, that's not going to make any sense. So if you turn it from a two-dimensional object into a three-dimensional object, it means as you move around the gospel, you see it in different ways and in different contexts. And the tricky part for most of us is that we have to work out what the gospel looks like in all the conditions in which we find ourselves. 
That's the beginning of wisdom. It's not the slapping down of a proposition. It's the understanding the full extent of how God brings salvation to people. And that happens over years, and it happens by meeting people from different backgrounds. We have to see the world differently. So Paul starts out in Ephesians chapter 1.17 by saying these words, and they're actually really cool. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So you can see differently as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, so on and so forth. And we sing that song, Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Help us to see differently. And when you see differently, you will see yourself in a different way in the world that we find ourselves in when we're beyond that. So wisdom and revelation only comes from God. It's mingled with experience, prayers, and talking with one another, being in community and together. But the key thing is that we know who, I know who I am in Christ, that you know who you are in Christ, and that together we know who we are as a whole. And that's the important part of what Paul's saying here in terms of these um, spiritual armour that we put on so that we come to terms with ourselves in the world that we live in so that we can make a difference in the world for Christ. If you want to be into the, the gender movement, fine. Go into the gender movement, be a part of it, but you go in as Christ's body. If you want to be in the environmental movement, fine, but you go in as a person who lives in Christ. If you want to go and join the National Party, fine, but you go in as someone who finds their identity in Christ. Labour Party, it doesn't... If you want to join the Lions Club or a motorbike group, you go in as your identity coming from Christ. And if you can get your head around that, and if you can experience it, it will change your lives forever, and you will always have a sense that life in its fullness is not out there somewhere, it's right here on my doorstep. And if you with that little bit of knowledge, you can change the world for somebody else. Have all those statistics of people killing themselves, very, very tiny percentage come from Christian backgrounds. Why? Because there is something of an identity that is beyond just simply our circumstances that says we have hope, we have momentum, because we are already in Christ, and Christ paints the picture of our lives today and for tomorrow. That's been far too long. Thank you for listening. Amen. Now... Uh, we were going to have an opportunity for ministry time. So if we sing a song, and some, some of you are going to want some prayer. And if you'd like that, we're more than happy to pray for you uh, as that happens. And it can be anything you like. It can be for yourself, it can be for somebody else, it can be for your own sense of identity, it can be for the filling of the Spirit, it can be for some issue. Whatever the case is, you can come and pray. Just don't all come at once. <laughs>